Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, a production of the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity, because great leaders never stop learning. I'm your host, George Maurer. In this edition, I'm talking to Lisa Fain, co-author of Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring, Lean Forward, Learn, and Leverage. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, George. Great to be here. In your book, you and your co-author, Lois Zachary, have developed a four-step, or as you call them, phases, a four-phase mentoring philosophy. Now, what sets your philosophy apart from others? Yeah, it's a great question. So our four phases are both predictive and they are instructive. So it's not just a model, it's really a map for the mentoring uh, process. And by that, I mean it shows the phases of the mentoring relationship from preparation to negotiation, which is about setting the parameters, to enabling growth, which is about learning and closure, that really help mentors and mentees determine where they are in the mentoring relationship And it gives them a map to follow so that they understand where they're going to go next and they can both prepare for that. And if something's not going well, they can return to a prior phase as well. So structure, plenty of structure. I'm a big fan of structure and that's always good. But apparently you also give them places where they can stop and reevaluate as they're going along to correct course. Did I hear that right? Yeah. That's exactly right. And in fact, the evaluation piece is so important. We um, really encourage mentors and mentees to pause and reflect throughout the mentoring process to say, all right, how are we doing on this phase? And do we have the foundation that we need in order to move forward? Or should we go back a phase and see if we can bolster it? I love that you use that term evaluation because it really is so essential to successfully navigating our model of mentoring. I see. Now, Your introduction talks about the importance of bridging differences. How do you define a bridge and what value do you think it brings to a mentoring relationship? Yeah, such a great question. How do I define a bridge and what value does it bring to the mentoring relationship? So a bridge is really a way to invite difference into the mentoring relationship. Here's what I mean about that. So often we talk about connecting despite our differences. And while that's a nice thought, I actually prefer thinking about connecting because of our differences. And by that, it's really about um, uh, encouraging people to show up authentically. So often we say, you know, um, I, I see, I, you know, for example, someone might say to me, I'm a woman, and they might say to me, I never see you as a woman, I just see you as a colleague. And while that's meant to feel inclusive, what it really does is dismiss an important part of my identity. So this idea of bridging differences is really about honoring those differences. It's about inviting those differences in and exploring them. And in doing so, you really increase the mentoring relationship because it really allows both the mentor and the mentee to show up authentically and bring their full selves to the mentoring relationship. Leadership Tip from Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring. Self-awareness helps you understand others. Sociologist Milton Bennett, creator of the developmental model of intercultural sensitivity. 
you quote him as saying bridging differences is about, and you were just talking about this, it's about adapting rather than becoming part of something. And we're trying to understand a different viewpoint rather than basically force it into one of our existing silos or beliefs. And you say this is where effective mentoring begins, learning the needs of others, but also understanding ourselves. This is the beginning of the preparing phase as you define it, the first phase of your mentoring philosophy. How do you describe this first step? Preparation is really about, you know, you said it so well in in your question itself. Preparation is about creating your own awareness, creating awareness of others, and using the skill of cultural competency um, that Bennett describes so well in his model um, to um, get curious about difference, to understand where you are, to prepare what you want to learn both as a mentee and as a mentor. And then to get to know your mentoring partner so that you can really, when it comes time to diving into goals, which happens in the next phase, you can really do so from a foundation of where it is the mentee wants to go, not where the mentor thinks the mentee should go. Um, And in a place where the mentee can feel open and welcome and prepared to uh, navigate his or her own learning goals. And you can forget that quite easily. As the mentor, we kind of feel like we're in charge, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's the mentee's preferences and goals. That's what we're really aiming for, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, you know, it's it's quite an outdated view of mentorship to think of this idea of a mentor as somebody who kind of dispenses wisdom without regard for what the mentee's own journey is. And rather, what we know from both from the data and from our own experience at the Center for Mentoring Excellence is that when the that the most effective mentoring relationships are when the mentor is there to help the mentee problem solve, to ask the right questions, but not necessarily to give all the answers or to just dispense of the wisdom from his or her own experience. It's really about tailoring it to the mentee. We, you know, we often use the, the rhyming phrase that the mentor is not the sage on the stage. The mentor is the guide on the side. And that helps people think about the role of the mentor in a way that's most effective. When I've been a mentor before, I actually learned a lot about myself. Um, has that been your experience as well? Yeah. And in fact, you know, when we talk to mentors at the end of their mentoring relationships, they are always surprised and delighted at how much they've learned. We hear that it helps them become better leaders. We hear that it helps them be better at their job, that it helps give them perspective, that they've gained a ton from the relationship with the mentee, but also that they started to see things differently. They started to recognize where their own blind spots might have been. They started to see new opportunities for innovation and um, leadership to grow their own leadership. And it's really, it's always so gratifying to have these conversations with mentors who say, wow, I cannot believe the leaps and bounds that I gained through this mentoring relationship where I focused on the goals of my mentee. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Culture is defined and reflected in so many ways, music, traditions, religion, and my personal favorite, food. (laughs) One of the interesting things you do in your book is say culture shapes not only how we see the world, 
but it also shapes how the world sees us. And you call that the identity iceberg. What is the identity iceberg and how is it important to consider when you're setting the table for a mentoring relationship? Yeah. So if you think about your own identity as an iceberg, right? So an iceberg is something where 80% of the iceberg is invisible, right? There's 20% above the waterline. And the same is true about each person, right? I'm making up the 80-20 number, but the truth is that there's so much more that's below the water that's that's invisible than that's that's visible. So above the waterline might be things like your skin color, the way you you present in your gender, um, your height, right? I, I often do this in workshops and people will say, oh, you're professionally dressed and you're wearing high heels and you write with your left hand and all of those things. Those are all things that are above the waterline. Below the waterline are all the other things that might shape the way I view the world and the way the, view, the world views me. So for example, my religious upbringing, my uh, socioeconomic status, my the fact that I uh, am not the first generation in my family to go to college, and for many they are. That would be one of their one thing for them. The way their preference for introversion or extroversion, their family of origin, sibling number of siblings, birth order, all of these things. I could go on and on and on for the things that are invisible or below the waterline, and. Until we take the time and we think about the many aspects of our identity that shape how we view ourselves, how and how we view the world, we will never fully be able to bridge differences because we won't be necessarily be aware of these things. All of these are elements of culture. The things that you talked about too, food, uh, music, if you think about overlaying you know, culture on those you may think, let's take, for example, Mexican culture, and I'll use this example for a very uh, definitive reason. You might say tacos, mariachi, speaking Spanish, all above the waterline. That's all objective culture. Subjective culture would be things like, uh, what is the narrative of the family? What is the I, this concept um, of the struggle, which is very endemic to Mexican culture? And I use this example because this was one of the very first uh, lessons that I learned when I was a diversity and inclusion professional. One of the things that I wanted to do was to have some celebrations in the workplace. So for Hispanic Heritage Month, I decided to uh, do you know uh, uh, Mexican food and a mariachi, and I was so I am not of Mexican Mexican descent. And one of the employees in our my organization who is stopped me and said, "Wait a minute, Lisa. You know I really like to think about stuff that people don't see that help." shape Mexican culture, like this idea of the struggle or the narrative of the family. And the next year, we did a whole presentation on that aspect for Hispanic Heritage Month. And it was so powerful and such a learning opportunity and gave people really an, a chance to see what's under the surface. Um, and for employees who are of Mexican heritage to be able to talk about that with their with, with their coworkers. It was so powerful to think about what's below the waterline. And one of the ways to create awareness of culture is to help people lower that waterline by creating a safe space that they can show up authentically. So it's a long answer to your question about what an identity iceberg is, but it's really a way for each of us to think about what makes up our cultural reference points and to help us show up and bring our differences into a mentoring relationship. Yes, interesting. It's not something we often have a chance to talk about or experience, and I would imagine that day was a very fulfilling celebration day for you. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you find yourself matched up with a mentee. One of the very first things you have to do is get to know each other. Again, you already approached it, but uh, so many of us have pretty superficial level conversations, but you say you need to reach a deeper level of communication to be effective in this area. In your book, you have a fictional relationship between a mentor named Heather and a mentee named Aisha. Heather's a hard charger, and Aisha is as well, but in a different way, in her own way. She's diligent at work, but seeks work-life balance. Aisha is an Indian American, and that culture places a high priority on family obligations. In the beginning of their relationship, Heather just assumed Aisha sought a similar path where basically work would sometimes take over her life. What can we learn from this early mistake on Heather's part? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think there's a lot of lessons there. Um, the first is that Heather was not really aware of her own bias and um, viewed her role as a mentor um, much like we started to talk about at the beginning of our conversation, George, which is just to relay her own experience and her own perspective uh, onto her mentee, and that 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 was the formula for success, um, particularly both for Heather and Aisha, who were women in a male-dominated um, industry. Um, Heather really projected her own goals and her va own values on her mentee. And in the story that you relay, um, it took Aisha really to articulate the importance and the consequences of not focusing on this sort of balancing work and home for Heather to say, wait a minute, I actually have been missing something. And so what we can learn is to check your assumptions um, as a mentor about what is important and not important for the mentee and to make sure that you're not projecting your own journey on the mentee. And there was a bit of a delay because Aisha, again, in her culture, she didn't really feel comfortable speaking up and setting Heather right to correct her. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Please continue. No, I think that's exactly, I think that's a huge point that there is this cultural overlay. And so often mentors, and I've made this mistake myself, maybe you have as well, is, oh, if the mentee has a need, he or she will tell me. But what we forget as mentors is no matter how open we think we are, our mentees are always going to want to please us. And they may or may not feel comfortable based on their cultural background um, or based even on their sense of uh, power and authority and trying to be respectful of saying, of challenging the assumptions of their mentor. So it's really important as a mentor to pause to ask questions, to say things like, what might I be missing? Or how might this work for you? Or how does this land for you? So that it gives the mentee space to question and add perspective and make sure that the mentor is not projecting their journey on the mentee. Leadership tip from Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring. Good mentoring involves good listening. This leads us to listening, a very important skill. You use a quote from Stephen Covey, author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, among many other books as well. 
Covey says, quote, seek first to understand and then to be understood, unquote. How does one improve their listening skills and what value can we expect to get from improving them? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to improve your listening skills and it's so important. You know, I I think the, the biggest mistake we often make with our listening skills is we use time when we should be listening to be planning, whether it's planning our response, whether it's planning the direction of a conversation, or whether it's planning something totally unrelated to where you are. So I would say there's really some critical things for listening. One is be in the conversation, meaning don't plan what you're going to say, but really listen with the intent to understand. A great uh, skill is reflection. And that is, you know, here's what I think I heard you say. Did I get it right? It, that, that serves two purposes, right? That helps you as the listener reframe and summarize, and it helps the person who is being listened to um, clarify what their meaning or their saying, what, the, what their intent was. Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. Personality and learning styles. Again, we've been talking about it mm-hmm. a bit, but people are different. They tackle the same problems often with different methods. And you touched upon the Myers-Briggs type indicator in the book. Personally, I'm an ESTJ. I gain my energy by acting. I prefer information that's tangible and concrete. I tend to make my decisions based on logic rather than feelings. I prefer structure. Again, something we already touched upon. And over the years, I've learned that I've got to be careful not to overwhelm people who are more thinking rather than acting. And in fact, in your fictional mentoring story, Heather is an ESTJ like me. Tell her what she needs to know, and she's off to the races. She's good. Aisha is an INFJ. She needs to take her time and reflect on a problem before she wants to get started. What do we need to know about personality and learning differences? You know, I... It's such a complex question, and I think um, part of it is the it goes back to self awareness and then awareness of others. I'm I am a fan of assessments, and I also know that not everybody is, and I also know that a danger of assessments is that we can put people in a box based on what we think, you know, their assessment shows. So assessments are a great first step in awareness and understanding where there might be differences. What is the speed? with which people process? What is the way in which they process? And then what is the context in which they process? So by that, I mean, there are people who, like me, I process by talking. Uh, I, you know, I process externally. I'm an extrovert and I work uh, my problems through by speaking them aloud. Now, the problem with that is if the person with whom I'm communicating is not does not have that same orientation, or we haven't checked the assumptions, shared what our styles are, they may assume that I actually have reached a decision by what my process is, or that I'm rambling, or that I'm unstructured. It could be a whole bunch of different things. I've had this situation with folks I've worked with when I'm processing externally, and my idea isn't fully formed, and they've assumed that that's a conclusion. So when you have a relationship like a mentoring relationship, it's really important to talk about how you process differently. The other piece is, and we talk about this a lot in the book, and I've seen it a lot in practice, that feedback 
is an essential piece of the mentoring relationship. Feedback on how the relationship is going and feedback on how mentees are doing on their goals. If somebody needs time to process, we can't expect to deliver the feedback and have them have an immediate response to it. So clarifying and sharing what your learning styles and your learning preferences are at the beginning of the relationship can help guide the effectiveness of the feedback process later in the relationship. So that if I, as your mentor, need to give you as a mentee some feedback, I know, is it more helpful to share my thoughts with you ahead of time in an email and then talk about it in our mentoring relationship? Or would you prefer just to talk about it in the mentoring relationship and then go process and share your response? When you talk about those things ahead of time, you can really maximize the feedback process so that it really is the most effective and a really good learning tool and learning time. I find it very interesting that you say you tend to work out your problems and issues by talking through them as an external person. I too am an external person, but when I have a problem, I prefer to let it roll around in my head internally for a while before I begin to speak out about it or talk about it. So if you and I were mentor and mentee, we would definitely have some negotiating to do ahead of time, correct? Yeah. And you know, that's why it's so important to spend time at the beginning of the mentoring relationship building trust. Because otherwise, when there's these differences in communication and differences in learning style, people tend to fill in things that they don't understand with negative assumptions. It's just this human nature. It's a terrible thing, but we all do it. And so if I'm sharing feedback and working through it with you and you're not responding because you need to process, I might fill in the blanks with, You know, George doesn't agree with what I'm saying. George doesn't understand what I'm saying. Um, George is being rude, right? When in truth, you're processing. And if we have the trust in the relationship, I can say, George, I'm, you know, you're not saying much. I'm wondering what that's all about, right? And that doesn't feel threatening. That feels inviting. Leadership tip. From Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring, Productive Mentoring Relationships Require Negotiation. You recommend making goals outcome-based rather than performance-based. Explain your definitions of each and why do you believe outcome-based goals are more effective when mentoring others? Yeah. So performance-based goals are goals that are based on, uh, well, there's two ways to look at it. Performance-based goals can be goals that are based on completing particular tasks, but they also can be goals that that are based on the effective performance of one's job. Mentoring is something that is developmental focused. So it's, we should focus our goals on our out, on our learning and what it is we want to experience once we've learned it. Because if you're focused too much on the performance, you're focused too much on the how of achieving the goal instead of the what. So by that, I mean what we might want to say is, uh, my goal is to become a better influencer. And I'll know that I've become a better influencer when I've introduced three new initiatives to my organization and they've been adopted, right? So you have a SMART goal, a goal that's specific and, and outcome related, as opposed to Um, I want to do three presentations as the goal, right? That's the how. 
And if you're focused on the how, there may end up being a better how. But if you're focused on the outcome, you can always adjust the how. And those three presentations may not have effective results, but you met your goals. Exactly. So I understand what you're saying, that you're more about outcome-based goals rather than performance-based. Now, once we understand differences, we can begin to use them, as you say in your book. And this is where we enter the second phase of your mentoring model, negotiating. As it implies... This involves give and take on both sides of the relationship. Again, this is something we've already touched upon, talked about a little bit, but it seems in each of these steps, they kind of contain elements of the overall picture, elements of everything. And here in the second phase, negotiating, this is where goals, expectations, boundaries, accountability, they're all established. Again, returning to Heather and Aisha, Heather is motivated by her pay bonuses when she performs well at work. Aisha, on the other hand, is looking for growth and balance personally and professionally. Two people motivated by two very different things. What are your recommendations for negotiating the various elements of a mentoring relationship? Yeah, I would say the first recommendation is take the time in the preparation and building trust and getting to know one another. I know it's a bit tautological, but um, in order to have effective negotiation, you really have to have that awareness of self and awareness of others and 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 the time to build trust. And the other suggestion is to use those listening skills, use the skills of communication to test out that the what you are negotiating, um, which really is about establishing agreements that set the parameter for your mentoring relationship, that those work for both people. And um, it may be as simple as going back to our conversation about time to process as you know testing these out and sleeping on it and and all of those things. But it also can be um, having the flexibility in what you negotiate in order to revisit it. So when you have that trust, you could say, you know, a month or two months in, hey, uh, you know, hey, George, I know uh, we talked about uh, establishing agreements and that we were going to only focus on um, issues related to, um, I don't know, uh, my influencing goal, um, and that that was one of our agreements. But I, I've been thinking about it, and um, I actually need to go a little bit deeper. Is it okay with you if we re- if we revisit that agreement? And if we've had that trust and if we've had that discussion and if we hold our agreements as guidelines, but we hold them lightly and loosely, we'll be able to revisit those so that it's something that will account for what our needs, how our needs are different and how our needs might change throughout the course of the mentoring relationship. Again, I'm hearing you have four distinct phases in there, but each of the phases has elements of all four. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah, you know, if I could show you the model, the line between each of the phases would be a double-sided arrow. Um, And the reason it's a double-sided arrow is because it's it's while it's linear, it's some it can go back and forth. It would be a little fuzzy. Yeah, fuzzy, but also just kind of you know we may decide that um, you know because people change, circumstances change, and things change, we may decide when I'm in the middle of getting a goal. You know, we may, maybe we're having some difficulty communicating, or maybe I'm not uh, showing up for my mentoring meetings, or maybe I um, I've decided that it would be really helpful to have an agenda before our mentoring meetings. So 
we go back to the negotiating phase and we talk about establishing those that structure for our mentoring relationship and then very fluidly go back to the goal getting phase um so it's it's not that they're fuzzy it's that there has to be fluidity to go back and forth um so that um you have the right structures in place um and you know although there's a double sided line it's not like you can start anywhere you still always have to start in the preparation phase because if you haven't done the preparation you can't possibly get effectively to the subsequent stages leadership tip from bridging differences for better mentoring effective mentors help people discover their own gifts phase 3 of your mentoring philosophy is enabling growth in your book you reference Liz Wiseman who in her book titled multipliers says everyone has natural gifts wiseman calls it native genius how do we help someone find their native genius how do we help ourselves find our native genius and then how do we help them make the most of it and this has got to be the biggest challenge of the entire process yeah it's certainly one of the biggest challenges um it's you know native this idea of native genius is such a beautiful thing uh there's a woman named Kristen Wheeler who's built on Liz Wiseman's work who does some work with native genius as well and both are are really important native genius is the intersection of where desire meets ability So what do I mean by that? Where what are you really good at and what do you really want to do that really energizes you? Um and you know this is such an important part of the mentoring process because until a mentee has realized what it is they want to do and what they're good at, they won't necessarily be chasing the right goals. you want to really make sure of that. So so how do you leverage that? Well, by some is by trial and error, some is by asking really good questions. Um some is by learning how to judge the energy uh when a mentee talks about a particular thing, whether it's super low energy, super high energy, um because we are energetic about the things that we get excited about and not about the things that drain us. and the more we can make those observations about where somebody seems to get super excited you know another way to f- discover native genius is kind of by discovering the opposite maybe we end up working on a goal and every time you come to our mentoring relationship you talk about the working towards that goal with great drudgery and no energy and gosh i didn't have a chance to work on that this time because so many other things got in the way and i just wasn't excited and i wasn't motivated to do it well It's very clear that what you're pursuing is not in your area of native genius then, isn't it? So redirecting until you can find something that's in that area is really really important. As someone who feels like they took a long time to find their native genius, mm-hmm. it's not wrong to perhaps just say it outright. Mm-hmm. You know, if 10 or 15 years ago someone had said to me, "This is where you should be, this is what you should be doing," I may have at first resisted. perhaps i was not ready for that particular information at that particular time but in my estj outlook i still say don't be afraid to just say it get it out there what do you think yeah i think that's part of feedback i think if i as your mentor can identify somewhere where i think you are lit up 
and w- have a lot of um, proficiency and skill and talent, that that's part of what's great about mentoring is that I can reflect that for you, right? I can say, wait a minute, George, have you considered whatever it is? You know, I think you'd be really good at that. Or your energy is really, or why are you, why, why does it seem you're resisting that? You know, and really getting curious about that. I think that it is, not only is it, um, is it not wrong to do that? I think it's really highly encouraged to be able to provide that feedback. And your answer for resisting is always mom issues, correct? Mom issues. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's mom issues. That's right. Hey, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> Enabling growth through support, vision, and challenge. Please define. Yeah. A mentee is looking for three things from their mentor. Support in achieving their goals, vision, helping to create and set a vision, and challenge, really challenging them to step outside of their comfort zone. And um, we know that effective mentoring relationships provide a petri dish for support, vision, and challenge between mentoring partners. It's really about the role of a mentor to provide that support, to help a mentee set their vision, and then to challenge the mentee to step outside of what's comfortable and achieve new things. In your mentoring philosophy, you also reference the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. However, you replace the golden rule with the platinum rule. What is the platinum rule and why do you suggest the change? Um, I wish I could take credit for having invented the platinum rule. I don't think that there's really a, a full attribute. I don't, I'm not sure it's attributed to anyone in particular, but it certainly didn't come originally from me. But what I love about the platinum rule, the platinum rule is treat others as they wish to be treated as opposed to the golden rule, which is treat others as you wish to be treated. And the reason that the platinum rule is so important is that the platinum rule really is the embodiment of cultural competency. It really is recognizing that the way I want to be treated is not relevant when we're talking about you. What's relevant when we're talking about you is the way you want to be treated and your view of fairness, your view of motivation, your view of autonomy in the workplace or whatever it is, your view of success, your view of appropriate boundaries, um, your view of, of what you want to get out of working and what you want your legacy to be is way more important if you're the mentee than what my view is. And so when I mentor you, I want to mentor you to what your view of success is, to what your view of Uh, what your values are, as opposed to mentoring you to my values. Leadership tip from Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring. All good relationships need closure. The last phase of your mentoring philosophy is coming to closure. Essentially, the mentor and mentee take some time to look back, think about what they learned, and then consider what comes next. How do you describe an effective closure? I think um, the best way to illustrate it is to start with describing what's not effective closure. And that is, that is, you know, hey George, thanks for the mentoring year. I learned a lot, Um, you know, hope to see you around, right? (laughs) Or worse, not closing it out at all Um, and just letting it fizzle or even if you're continuing after the prescribed mentoring period, 
um, not marking the end of the mentoring period. That's ineffective closure or no or non-existent closure. Effective closure um, has several attributes. The first attribute is reflection on what you've learned. Then it's articulation and appreciation for what you've learned. So it might look more like, you know, George, thank you so much for being my mentor this year. I learned from you really how to be an effective influencer. And it made such a difference on my career because blah, 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 blah. I've really, you know, here's what I've learned from you. I really appreciate the way you uh, did this, this, and this in the mentoring relationship. And then um, celebrating what the achievements were. Here are the things that we accomplished together as a mentoring pair. So there's the, uh, there's the reflection, there's the appreciation, there's the celebration, and then there's the, de- the redefining how you're going to go on. Maybe you choose to continue as mentor and mentee. Maybe you choose to redefine the relationship in that you'll be an advisor instead of a mentor. Or, you know, instead of meeting biweekly, we're now going to meet monthly or quarterly, and we're going to talk about this instead of that. And then the final option is to decide that it's just time to part ways. And there's not any right or wrong, but it's important for both mentor and mentee to have a discussion about what moving on looks like. Returning to Heather and Aisha. At the end of their year together, Heather felt they should end their mentoring relationship. She had some very challenging professional goals established for herself in the coming year. And those goals would not allow her to give Aisha the time she deserved for proper mentoring. Now, Aisha, on the other hand, thought they should continue. Again, culturally, she's more about long-term relationships. What is your recommended way to handle a situation where a mentor and mentee are completely on two different pages when it comes to closure? It's really about conversation. It's really about... Look, mentoring is is a voluntary um, thing, and it is something that has to be uh, defined mutually with mutually acceptable boundaries and mutually acceptable goals, even though the goals are focused on the mentee's development. So closure is no exception, and it has to really work for both parties. So the idea is to have an open, no fault, no blame no no hurt feelings kind of conversation about what going forward looks like and what's whether it's in the the mutual interest of both parties and so if you take the trust and the momentum that you've built and you do the other pieces of closure effectively the piece about reflection the piece about appreciation the piece about celebration then that sometimes awkward conversation about should we move on together or should we not really becomes much easier because, you know, if it, if, it's, if it was working great, spectacular, and sometimes it's just time to move on. And so recognition and acknowledgement of the cultural difference is really, really important. And you'll remember in Heather and Aisha's scenario that Heather really acknowledged that uh, it would be difficult for Aisha uh, to not continue. And Aisha mentioned that as well. Aisha said, in my culture, we would, this is something we would continue. So to be able to talk about that is really important in figuring out how you're going to move on in a way that's mutually agree- mutually agreeable. And how they mutually agree to a path forward. In this case, Heather helped Aisha find a new mentor, an acceptable solution for both folks. Now that you've shared your ideas with me, I want you to consider this. 
if I'm not involved in a formal mentoring relationship, but I still want to apply some of these ideas, how might I go about doing that in an informal way in my workplace? Yeah. You know, it's really very similar. Um, you know, clearly a mentoring relationship um, provides the structure, but this this information about bridging differences can be really useful in when you lead a team, uh, in a supervisory relationship with a colleague, because if you take the time for the self-awareness, you'll start to notice where there might be differences that make a difference for other people. And you can start to exercise the skill of curiosity to start to create a space in your relationships where people will bring those into play. And having that awareness um, will deepen the relationship itself. And so a lot of times, if you, you know, it's not just the model of uh, preparation um, and then negotiation and then enabling growth and, and closure in which you apply the skill of bridging differences. The skill of bridging differences is so globally beneficial. And if you think about what, what makes you, you, you can start to see what, uh, to start to see and to get curious about what makes other people who they are. Um, and that will help you with your, you know, relate to the people you report to or who report to you, relate to the people with whom you work, um, and really help you as a team uh, perform better once you understand and appreciate those differences as well. It's a skill that can be applied anywhere. Mm -hmm. Lisa Fain, co-author of Bridging Differences for Better Mentoring, Lean Forward, Learn, and Leverage. Thank you, Lisa. Great conversation today. Thanks, George. Appreciate the conversation very much. And thank you for listening to The Leadership List, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember... Great leaders never stop learning. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants Dave Beeson, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.